Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Hi, welcome to our 100th edition of Differing Things. This is exciting for us as this is indeed our 100th episode. It seems incredible that we've actually been able to do this many different podcasts. Today, I think I have something very special for you, and I want to walk you through something that, to me, I'm very passionate about. Have you ever heard anyone say, How could a loving God throw me in hell forever and ever and ever? What kind of God is this? If that is the way he is, I do not want anything to do with him. Or have you ever had trouble explaining to someone, after losing a loved one, if that person did not know Jesus prior to death, that they would be in hell forever and ever? and they would never see their loved one again? What a horrible thing to say to someone who needs comfort. Yet, with the current theology and thought on the doctrine of hell, this is presented as truth. And if you do not believe this way of thinking, then you are going to burn forever. It was this sort of question and comment that really finally caused me to look at the doctrine of hell in great detail. Today's Differing Things is a study that you should use as a guide to not only learn why most of the church believes the way it does about this subject, but hopefully to dispel some of the myths and contradictions that the orthodox damnation torture doctrine presents as truth. This study is my attempt at putting into words how I myself came to the conclusion I have about hell. It is by no means exhaustive and really only scratches the surface. However, It should prove to be an informative expedition into what the Bible teaches on this issue. May the Lord bless you for having an open and willing heart to investigate things you have probably never considered. I want to start with what the Bible teaches. The the Bible teaches that God will restore all things, according to Acts chapter 3, verse 21. The Bible teaches that all the earth's families will be blessed through Jesus Christ, who is Abraham's seed, according to Genesis 12, 3, Psalm 72, 17, Galatians 3, 8, and Galatians 3, 16. The Bible teaches all the earth's families will remember the Lord, will turn to him, and will worship him, 
in Psalm chapter 22, verses 27 through 28. The Bible teaches that all flesh will bless his name through the eons and sing his praise in Psalm 145, 21 and Psalm 66, verses 3 and 4. The Bible teaches God's tender mercies are over all his works, and all his works shall praise him. That's Psalm 145, verses 9 and 10. The Bible teaches that God's anger is momentary, but his mercy is non-ending. That's Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. Psalm chapter 136, and Micah chapter 7, verse 18. The Bible teaches that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and they will swear to him in oath of allegiance. It's Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 24, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The Bible teaches that God's will and good pleasure and purpose are to unite all creation in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 110 and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Bible teaches that God's word will not return void, but will indeed accomplish his desire, pleasure, and purpose. That's Isaiah 45, verse 23. Isaiah 46, verse 11, and Isaiah 55, verse 11. The Bible teaches that God has given Christ all things in Ephesians 1.22, in Hebrews 1.2, in Hebrews 2, verses 7 and 8. The Bible teaches that Christ will accomplish his Father's will and lose nothing of all he has been given in John 6.37. In John 6.39, in John 17.2, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. The Bible teaches that through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. And interestingly enough, the King James Version Bible, unfortunately, likes to leave out the word the in, that, in the Romans passage. But the word the is in the passage. The Bible teaches that God is the Savior of all people, especially, but not exclusively, of those who believe. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. The Bible teaches that Christ, the Lamb of God, has put away sin, the sin of the world. That's John chapter 1, verse 29, Hebrews 9, verse 26, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. And the Bible teaches that God's mercy endures. That's Psalm chapter 136. So in light of all of this, where did the doctrine of eternal torture initiate? 
Why do we have all this confusion and perplexity when we have such comprehensible biblical details for ultimate salvation? I want to talk about the history of hell for a moment. As I began to study this topic, I came across the third century Christian writer and theologian, Origen. He proposed that punishments were purgatorial and that they were balanced to the culpability of the creature and not unending. In due course, all creatures would be purified. Eventually, everyone would be restored to bliss and in a correct condition with God and before God. But the Second Council of Constantinople damned the doctrine of ultimate salvation in the year 553 AD. The Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church adopted the belief in the eternity of the punishment and hell became a mainstream doctrine used to instill fear and supremacy over its parishioners. Where and how did the popular belief about hell as a place of never-ending torture originate? Many sources speculate that the doctrine of eternal torture and punishment for the wicked originated from Hindu, Persian, Egyptian, and Grecian religions. In fact, the ancient Egyptian concept of hell as a place of burning fire and gruesome tortures is indistinguishable from the conventional Christian belief about hell. The feelings and patterns of this pagan hell have biased Christian dogma and doctrine ever since. Writers of the Middle Ages, such as Augustine and Dante, yield the imaginations of professing Christians shaping a hellish belief system. The influence of these writers and the teachings of church leaders have instilled consent to the point that one is viewed a heretic if one does not accept as true these pagan concepts of hell. Believe or burn is the customary party line, allowing no room for God's love. It nullifies the cross of Jesus Christ it nullifies the cross and Jesus' sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. The Second Council of Constantinople in 553 AD is where the doctrine of eternal punishment became mainstream belief. In an endeavor to keep pagans and Christians under control by the mixing of pagan philosophies of a rancorous, wrathful God with Christian truth. Does this sound like the gospel of hope to you? Does this sound like the God you know? 
I always believed Christianity was different. I thought God was love. I thought that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Does not John 129 state, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world? I thought Jesus won a total victory on the cross. Doesn't Jesus state in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me? Why is the Egyptian doctrine of hell the same as the teaching of modern-day Christianity? If it is Egyptian in origin, then is eternal torture of God? Is it biblical? Consider Moses. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we read, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses was perhaps the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the man who spoke directly with God. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11 states, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaks unto his friend. Moses does not once mention any of this Egyptian folklore about hell. Why not? Because he, of all people, knew that they were just myths, pagan in origin. He did not once mention any of these Egyptian myths in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or the Psalms that he wrote. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament failed to mention eternal hell to anyone. If these Egyptian myths were true, then surely he would have warned of this impending doom lurking over the souls of all Israel and the world. But there is not one mention of these fables in the Torah. The Jews, for the most part, do not believe these doctrines today because they are not gleaned from the Hebrew scriptures. The Old Testament is totally silent about a place of non-ending torment. Think about this for a moment. When God talked to Adam in the garden and told him not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God never once mentioned the idea of anything that could be construed as hell. Wouldn't you think that would have been a perfect time for God to have mentioned something like that? Don't you think that God himself would have communicated that great truth to Adam? But he's silent on it. He doesn't once say anything. Now, there are common objections. So why is it obligatory to believe in the Lord Jesus now for salvation? That's one of the objections that's common. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 states, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, 
who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, first and foremost, I want to state a person cannot be a savior if they do not save. So for people to argue that Jesus is a potential savior is really redefining what the word savior means. A savior is one who saves, not one who potentially saves. But we must ask the question in the 1 Timothy 4.10 passage, why specially of believers? Well, there is a benefit to know the Lord now prior to physical death. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 state, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profits little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the light that now is, and of that which is to come. When we first came to the Lord, many of us did not realize the path ahead. The Christian walk is something we all grapple with now. Yet this walk is crucial for our transformation. Better for us to go through the fire now and die to sin so we can grow more into the image and likeness of God's Son on this side of heaven than have to give an account for that sin directly before the Lord on the other side. Hoping for the presence of God now through trials so later we gain more of God as reward. We should be following Ephesians 5, verses 10 through 6, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And he have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, Awake thou that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then, that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. This is the burden we must bear. God raises us up from death, the hurt, the pain, the fire, the fight, the trial, the temptation, the battle, and the attack of the enemy. We must not give in to it. The next objection is, but what about sinful death, willful sin? What about that willful sin? Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8 states, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit Reap life, Eonian, literally, age-long life.
the wages of sin is still death. Romans 6, verse 23 state, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is Eonian, not everlasting, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Eonian life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This letter to the Romans was written to whom? Christians. We should die to sin, turning away from things that keep us from growing in God. Many have used this verse as an evangelism tool. However, its context is not talking about eternal damnation and hellfire. Its context is death to sin for the Christian, getting our walk right before the Lord so that we can become more like Christ. That is the context of Romans 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 state, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. This is a free gift, only when we choose to accept it. I hear so many times the question, are you not just giving a license to sin? The honest answer is, people live however they want to live anyway. They are just being honest before the Lord even if they do not yet know him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 state, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul wrote those words to the body of Christ. Peter writes these words to the nation of Israel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What is this fire? Deuteronomy 4 verse 24 states, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Hebrews 12 29, For our God is a consuming fire. Fire in our hearts is the fire of God, the burning away of sin with a willingness to become like Jesus. Again, it is better to be honest before the Lord than to be lukewarm. Sins could be anything that keeps us from growing and going on in God. Sin 
is simply missing the mark. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 state, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All these sins will be burnt up, and all those in the lake of fire will be purified. The fire is a divine cleansing, the very presence of God himself. The second death is to destroy people's sins and purify those very same creatures, not to torture people forever. The pagan doctrine of hell paints God as a monster, merciless and unforgiving. Many are in the church today because of these terrifying fables. Have you ever heard a Christian say we have fire insurance? This takes away from the purpose of the judgment. This takes away and steals the love of God from the hearts of the brethren and robs the process of being made into the image and likeness of him, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. If we are to become like Christ and mirror the image of God in which we were formed, our sins must be destroyed. This is the purpose of fire and brimstone in God's judgment. Consider what God says. Hebrews 12:6 states, For whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. Some must go through this fire and accept the judgment of God in their lives and be willing to go through it for the sake of submission to God. Philippians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 state, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Philippians states that we, the members of the body of Christ, must die to sin as Jesus did and be conformed to his death. There is really no point in being lukewarm and continuing in sin because all will be saved. So all will have to go through the fire at one time or another. Why not get it over with and become like Christ now and be in the kingdom of God now, rather than prolonging the purifying or conforming process? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 26 state, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule 
and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So if death will be abolished, then how can there be eternal torment? In the scriptures, death refers to the fallen state of Adam, whereas life refers to the resurrection in Christ. When death is abolished, all that can be left is life. All will be conformed to Christ, and no one will remain in the fallen state forever. Paul is writing here about the death of death. And the only death that remains after the great white throne judgment was the second death. The death of death is the death, the eradication of that second death. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 goes on to state the conclusion of this enemy being defeated. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him. Why? That God may be all in all. There is a misunderstanding of many important words. What is in a word? How can a slight twist in understanding of a few key words in the Bible skew the faith of the majority of Christians, causing them to believe punishments of hell are non-ending? Believe it or not, this is precisely what has come to pass. Let us study these words in scripture and how their meaning has been skewed in almost every mainstream denomination that exists. The word aeon and the ages. Here is only one example of the 197 times Strong's Concordance uses word 165 and word 166 in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. The words everlasting and eternal here are Strong's word number 166. Aonios, or Aonios. And from that comes from word number 165, and it means this, according to Strong's, abiding from age to age, perpetual as in duration extended, also use the past time or past and future as well. Periods of time, long-lasting, with definite beginning and end. From root 165, aeon from the same 
as number 104 properly an age. By extension or by implication, the world, especially a period of time, of concealed duration, a messianic period, present or future. Thus, the word that Bible translators have rendered eternal or everlasting is the Greek word aonios, and since this is the adjective form of the word aeon, which means an age, aonios can mean age-lasting or age-abiding. It does not mean eternal or forever as we commonly understand it. In fact, to understand this Greek word in English implies a definitive length of time. The King James Version of the Bible renders aeonios in the New Testament as all of the following in different versions or verses. Age, course, eternal, forever, evermore, forever, and ever, everlasting world, beginning of the world, world began, world without end. What is the meaning of aeon? It is the word in which we get our English word eon which according to Webster's Dictionary, means a long period of time. Aeon simply means age, a period of time. Aeonios simply means lasting for an age, or ages, or periods of time. So why are we forced to believe that these Greek words mean anything different? It is because of incorrect Bible teaching caused by pagan-influenced doctrines from the church about hell that originated in 553 A.D. Then there's the word Colossus. Let's look at that one important verse about eternal punishment again. In Matthew 25, 46, we read, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, in the King James Version. The word for punishment here is the Strong's word 2851, Colossus. And it derives from word number 2849, which means a penal infliction. It's from root word 2849, which is the word Kalazo from Colossus, dwarf, properly to curtail, to chastise. To curtail means to restrain as a person is restrained in jail, or a child is restrained when he is grounded from some disobedience. To chastise has one simple meaning according to Webster's New World Dictionary, to punish in order to correct usually by beating. It should be clear that this is not meaningless, unending, sadistic torture, but purposeful correction. How then should we understand a passage like Matthew 25, 46? Matthew 25, 46 is age-lasting correction and age-abiding life. So what is the accurate biblical doctrine of hell or torment in terms of duration? And the answer is this. 
however long it takes to purify the individual. Just see, for instance, John chapter 3, verse 15, and Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Then there's the words imperishable, age-abiding life. I can hear some of you saying, age-abiding life? I thought we had eternal life in Christ. Well, how do we know that age-abiding life lasts forever? Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, according to 2 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 through 55, has come to us in the power of endless life. And because he lives, we also live in him, according to Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. Because we have words in the Bible, in the Greek New Testament, that mean immortality, in deathlessness, we know our life is non-ending. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 states, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Incorruption comes from the word, New Strong's word, number 861, and it means perpetuity, purity, sincerity, to be incorrupt. It is used in passages like Romans 2.7, 1 Corinthians 15.42, 1 Corinthians 15.50, 1 Corinthians 15.53. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, it is used in Ephesians 6.24 and 2 Timothy 1.10 and Titus chapter 2, verse 7. The word immortality is Strong's word number 110. It is the Greek word athanasia, meaning undying and deathless. The person's immortal and happy existence after resurrection is taught in the New Testament by words that in the Bible are never applied to anything that is of limited duration. They are applied to God and the person's happy existence only. In addition to the two words that I have just mentioned, here are three more. The Strong's word number 179, and it derives from word number 2647. It means indissoluble, permanent. The King James often translates this word as endless. It's used in Hebrews 716. Then there's Strong's word number 262, M-R-A-N-T-I-N-A-S, which literally means that which does not fade. The King James renders it in 1 Peter 5.4, that fadeth not away. Then there's word number 862 in Strong's, and it means this, undecaying incorruptible. 
in essence, or continuance. There are some Bible verses that would show that life in Christ is non-ending, both for the believing Jew in Israel's program and for the believing member of the body of Christ in the grace program. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, speaking of Israel's program, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you notice the words? An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away. These are words which teach the idea of endlessness. To the body of Christ, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 state, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible. Notice 1 Timothy 1, 17, immortal. Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, uncorruptible God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Notice, but we an incorruptible. Romans chapter 2, verse 7, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished sin, he has abolished death, and he has brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Let me reread that. 2 Timothy 1, verses 1, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I, Paul, am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 states, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power for the ages. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54. Now, 
This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. These words are not used to describe punishment. And you will not find these words used to describe punishment in Scripture. Had the Bible intended to teach endless punishment, they would have used these words. But they do not. To sum up, Greek words in the Bible show that life in Christ is not ending. But punishment is only temporary. Although, that temporary punishment can indeed last a very long time. There are words that are translated as hell in a lot of English Bibles. In the Old Testament, the word hell is always a translation of the Hebrew word sheol, which occurs 64 times and is rendered hell 32 times, grave 29 times, and pit three times in the King James Version. The primary meaning is the place or the state of the dead. Just read verses like Genesis 37, 35, Job 14, 13, Psalm 6, 5, and Psalm 139, 8 to see this. There is no teaching in the Old Testament that Sheol is a place where people will be tortured non-ending. In fact, all people, whether they are believers or non-believers, whether they are righteous or unrighteous, go to Sheol, according to the Hebrew Scriptures. Because Sheol simply means the grave or the place of the dead. It is an unseen place. It is a place where the individual is no longer seen, and hence a good translation of the word Sheol is the unseen. There are in the New Testament, it's a little bit more complicated. There are three words translated hell in the New Testament. These words are Hades and Tartarus and Gehenna. Now Gehenna is literally the Greek form of the Hebrew words Gi and Hinnom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. It is also interesting to note that no reference to hell in Scripture ever refers to an individual Gentile. Hades 
occurs 11 times in the King James Version and is rendered grave once and hell 10 times. The primary meaning of Hades, again, is the same as the Old Testament Sheol, the grave or state of the dead, a place of unseen. Hades is used in a figurative sense to represent a state of degradation, calamity, or suffering. Hades is a name of a Greek mythological god of the underworld. Fine's Dictionary states the word Hades is used four times in the Gospels, and always by the Lord in Matthew 11.23, Matthew 16.18, Luke 10.15, and Luke 16.23. It is used with reference to Christ in Acts 2.27 and Acts 2.31. Christ declares that he has the keys of it in Revelation 1.18. In Revelation 6.8, it is personified with the signification of the temporary destiny of the doomed. Notice this, the temporary destiny of the doomed. It is to give up those that are therein, according to Revelation 20, verse 13, and is to be cast into the lake of fire in verse 14. All of the above references have no time duration reference. All in Hades will be judged, even the devil and his angels will eventually be brought to a right standing with God. And I want you to also note, Revelation 20, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, that's Hades, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Strong's word number 1538, Hekastos, is if a superlative of Hekas, afar, each or every meaning everyone, every man, woman, particularly. So every person or all will be judged at that time. Still no time duration note is in the context. Tartarus occurs only once in the Bible, and that is in Second Peter 2.4. Again, there is no time duration noted. In Greek mythology, Tartarus is the lowest region of the underworld. According to Hesiod and Virgil, Tartarus is as far below Hades as the earth is below the heavens and is closed in by iron gates. In some accounts, Zeus, the father of the gods, after leading the gods to victory over the Titans, banished them to Tartarus. The name Tartarus was later employed sometimes as a synonym or, or as a cinnamon for Hades or the underworld in general, but more frequently for the place of damnation where the wicked were punished after death. Such legendary sinners as Zexon, king of the Lapiths, Sisyphus, king of Corinth, and Tantalus, a mortal son of Zeus, were placed. In Tartarus. It is also important to note that no person, let me repeat this, no person 
is ever referred to as being in Tartarus in the scriptures. Only spirit beings are said to be there. Gehenna, the Greek Gina, Hebrew Gi Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, near Jerusalem, so-called because some of the Israelites sacrificed their children to Moloch there. See, for instance, 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 10. It is a, the valley itself came to be regarded as a place of abomination. In a later period, it was made a refuse dump, and perpetual fires were maintained there to prevent pestilence. Thus, in the New Testament, Gehenna became synonymous with the present idea of hell. Today, it is a nice green park in the country of Israel. You can read of Gehenna in verses like Matthew 5.22, Matthew 5.29 and 30, Matthew 10.28, Matthew 18.9, Matthew 23.15, Matthew 23.33, Mark 9.43, Mark 9.45, Mark 9.47, Luke 12.5, and James chapter 3, verse 6. And again, in every reference, there is no time duration. In any of these verses, nor is Gehenna necessarily to be understood as a place of torture. It indicates destruction, degradation, and shame. It is symbolic of divine judgment. To the Hebrews, the Valley of Hinnom was a terrible, abominable place for one's body to be placed at that. It was regarded as shameful to family members to have a loved one dumped there. It was bad for the family name, reputation, and social status. Criminals were often tossed in naked and were urinated on. This place is the literal garbage dump for Jerusalem. It is used figuratively in reference to hellfire or the punishment of God in which evil things are burned up. If a person is dead, how do they feel flames burning? Can a spirit burn? This idea of perpetual burning makes no sense in the spiritual when these verses are referring to a literal, physical place. A more reasonable interpretation of Gehenna in regard to hell is that it represents divine judgment against sin. The process of destroying sins and cleansing the sinner who incurs shame and suffering in the process. And I also want to note this. In our English Bibles, oftentimes names are transliterated. Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem. Capernaum becomes Capernaum. Why is it? that the word Gehenna, which is a proper place, has to be translated and become an entirely new word. It is the only proper place that this is done for in all of Scripture. Do you think maybe a bias? 
of the translators led to this? But what about the unquenchable fire aspect? Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48 states, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. Here is the Strong's word number 762, asbestos. It derives from word 4570, which means not extinguished, not to be quenched, unquenchable. At first glance, it may seem that fire not quenched would mean forever. But here's my question. Does it? The same word asbestos is used in two other places in Scripture. Matthew 3.12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. And Luke 3.17, which basically restates Matthew 3.12. What happens to wood or paper when they are placed in fire and it is not quenched? Why? They burn up. If the fire is not extinguished, all fuel, or in this case, chafe, will be consumed. These verses show that the purifying fire is unquenchable. It does not, again, show time duration. The point of calling the fire unquenchable is not to say that it will never stop burning. But it is to say that it will continue burning until all that can burn will be burned up. What cannot burn will remain passing through the fire unharmed, no matter how long it burns. Remember, the fire we are talking about is the all-consuming fire, the presence of God himself according to Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.9. God is indeed fire, but only that which is evil will be destroyed by God. And I want you to also note the same word for fire is used in another passage. 1 Peter 1.7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. In other words, unquenchableness, though it be tried with unquenchable fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Strong's number, word number 4442, the word pour, fire. It's a primary word 
literally the idea of lightning or flames, fire. So what kind of fire is this? It is a refining fire. It is intended to purify and to make clean. Its purpose is to once again bring about repentance and change of heart in the presence of God. All sins are burned away and consumed in this fire of God's presence. Thus the sinner is purified, completely dying to sin, so that he can live non-ending in Christ. The fire is unquenchable in the sense that it cannot stop burning away a person's sinful nature. That's actually a bad expression. It cannot stop burning away a person's sins until it has been completely destroyed to be, to be replaced with Christ-likeness. The book of Jeremiah refers a few times, and I'm not, you can just check it out for yourself, to the fact that Jerusalem was burned with unquenchable fire. My question to you is, is Jerusalem still burning? And if it is not, then the idea of an unquenchable fire lasting non-ending is false. I do want to bring up one last point tonight. When we talk about this topic, many people will argue that at the point of death, a person doesn't have a chance for salvation. And I will say that is not so. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter number 1, we read in verse 16 a very amazing passage that the Apostle Paul writes in regards to himself. The Apostle Paul, when speaking of himself and his condition before he met the Lord, he had this to say in 1 Timothy chapter number 15 and 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first. Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. Now pay attention to the next phrase. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life, the King James renders it everlasting, but it really should be rendered life eonian. <clears throat> now let's talk about this for a minute. The word pattern is the Greek word hypotoposis, and it has the meaning of a model representation, a sketch for imitation. Paul was saved in a different way than you today were saved, a very different way. His was salvation 
by direct divine intervention. In Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, the Apostle Paul gives an account of his conversion. And I'm not going to read it because it would be quite lengthy. Well, maybe I will read it. In Acts chapter 22, in verses number 6 through 11, we will read here how Paul recounts his salvation. I want you to pay attention to some of the specifics here. Acts chapter 22, verse 6, going down through verse 11. I'm reading it again out of the King James Bible. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground, and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came unto Damascus. Paul gives an account of his conversion in those words. And I ask you, is this the way that you were saved? And my answer is, hardly. Saul, who later was called Paul, was an arch enemy of God. It took the direct hand of God to stop him in his tracks and turn him around. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said that his salvation was a pattern, a model representation, a sketch for imitation. But it was not a pattern of our salvation. No, you were not saved by God appearing directly and speaking to you. You were not blinded by the brightness of God's glory as he communicated to you. You did not have a personal conversation where he spoke audible words to you and you spoke back to him. That is not the way you were saved. You were saved because you believed the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And by believing and trusting in that, you had a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that was not how Paul was saved. Our conversion into Christianity in no way resembles his. A closer look at what Paul actually said will reveal that he did not tell Timothy that his salvation was a pattern for ours. He says 
that his conversion was a pattern not for now, but for those who should hereafter believe. A definition of hereafter found in Webster's Dictionary is in a future state. Let me repeat that. Webster's Dictionary defines hereafter as in a future state. The Greek word is Strong's Greek lexicon is number 3195. It is the word mellow. Here are some verses where the word is used. Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 12, 32. Luke 3, 7. Romans 8, 38. 1 Corinthians 3, 22. And there's lots more. Clearly, the Greek word mellow speaks of that which is to come. And the words are here. After, after here. In First Timothy one sixteen, when Paul speaks of the hereafter or after here, Saul did not believe by simple faith apart from sight. He took the Damascus Road experience, and that experience brought him. To Christ. He met up with the resurrected Christ. Oh, the extent to which God will go to reach man. He is much less limited than we in his evangelism. Paul says that his salvation is a pattern for those who should believe here. After. And this deliverance, this salvation, shows forth all of God's long suffering. Paul is not our apostle in this current dispensation of the grace of God in the sense that he is a pattern to our salvation. God gave to him a message that he referred to as the mystery or the secret, and that makes him the apostle to the body of Christ. But Paul is an example of salvation to unbelievers hereafter, after this present time, after this dispensation of the grace of God. After their death, the unbelieving, the obstinate, the oppressors, the enemies of God will all have a dramatic conversion coming face to face with their Savior. Remember, he is the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. They will come face to face with their Savior in the resurrection at the great white throne judgment, where their sins will be purged away and all that remains is what is Christ-like. And ultimately, 
God will be all in all. God bless and rejoice that Jesus Christ won a total, absolute victory. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.